All right. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Captain Chris Torres, Vice President of the Allied Pilots Association. Uh, I'm here with uh, APA President Captain Ed Stitcher for our National Town Hall update to the pilot group. There's the agenda. Everything we're going to be going over, we'll start with uh, Ed and myself, and then uh, we will uh, jump into some room of control. We'll talk to a bunch of our committees. All right. Uh, let's see here. So first up, Captain Sitcher, and I'm actually looking at the panelist list, and I don't see him on here. So he may have had trouble dialing in. So we may have to skip him for now and come back. Uh, there's some questions in here that he was specifically going to address, so we'll uh, we'll save those. Uh, the one thing I was going to throw out to the group, just in terms of the governance uh, and reform committee that I'm chairing, so hopefully you saw the message that went out. There's polling ongoing. That started on Monday of this week. It's going to go to Wednesday of next week. Uh, as a reminder, when we do these telephone polls, not everybody gets called, but if you do get the call, uh, we ask that you take the time. It's going to take about 10, 15 minutes to uh, take that poll. Uh, so give us uh, that feedback. One of the things I want to bring up here is this was discussed at last week's board meeting. Uh, we are trying to move down the path of electronic voting, incorporate this into the reform that we're doing. Uh, we have found a potential vendor. We're going to be including them in the October caucus when we meet up with the uh, uh, board of directors in that caucus format. If you got any feedback for us, uh, governance at alliedpilots.org. And then if you've got any feedback for the town hall, go to uh, townhall at alliedpilots.org. Uh, so I'm going to skip these first couple of questions because those are specifically for Ed. And once he's up on the call, uh, we will circle back around to take those. Uh, in fact, he was going to talk about the trip trading as well. So uh, I'll, I'll jump into this uh, first question for myself. During the August board meeting, a motion was passed to direct government affairs, aeromedical, and the pilot occupational health committee to address issues with Office of Aerospace Medicine. It was rescinded later in the week. Why? Uh, so bottom line is Aeromedical, the Government Affairs Committee, and uh, CAPA, in fact, were already addressing these types of issues before the motion was passed, and they are still doing that. After the motion was passed on a Tuesday, I think it was, there was a couple issues in there that were brought up with the motion. Uh, one of them was the point that Pilot Occupational Health was not the appropriate committee to address it. Uh, for anybody who's familiar with POH, their primary responsibilities are things like solar radiation, not addressing FA certificate issues. So Government Affairs Committee, like I said, they were already working on that issue. They also weren't consulted on the motion. So after the board discussed it, uh, it was determined the following Thursday that they would rescind the motion and just allow government affairs and aeromedical to continue to address the issue. So that will continue. It's just not going to have uh, the pilot occupational health at the forefront. All right. So for these next couple of questions, I'm going to bring up Secretary Treasurer Pat Clark. Uh, the first one for you, Pat, is when will our monthly dues be reduced back to 1% now that negotiations are over? Hey, Chris, thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, per the motion that was passed at the August SBOT that was in late August, we return to 1% dues effective 1 October. And Pat, can you just touch on the uh, uh, why it didn't already happen since the vote happened at that last board meeting or maybe two board meetings ago? Sure, because the company needs some lead time to, uh, since they're the one that obviously withholds the dues, they needed a lead time. And typically that's between 30 and 60 days. So as soon as we got it over the company, it was agreed upon one October would be the soonest they could do it. All right, next question. APA is dispersing the remaining section six half percent dues uh, by suspending dues on the payments of the supplemental bonus and ratification bonus. What happens if the suspended pay is less than remaining funds? 
Okay. Um, I'll need to quote the CMB for that in the beginning. The CMB says all remaining funds from the additional dues shall be refunded and or rebated to the respective members as soon as practical, according to a formula approved by the board of directors. So with that, as of July 31st, the deferred dues balance, which is the remaining section six dues, was slightly over 12 million, 12 million 63,000. The estimate for the suspension of dues for the one-time supplemental payment and the ratification bonus is between 11.2 and 12.5 million. So since the CNB states all remaining funds will be rebated, if the actual due suspension is less than the deferred balance, uh, the remaining funds would again be rebated according quote to a formula approved by the board of directors and that would typically be with the dues holiday but it should be pretty darn close all right thank you pat uh, for the next question i'm going to ask mark myers from the negotiating committee to uh, step up and take this one the dues refund was justified as an equitable uh, method of returning dues but some pilots who won't get an equitable return of dues lump sum early pilots as an example pilots with mandatory six sellback and pilots who retired in late November or December 2022. Can you speak to this? Hey, yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. Um, as, as Pat said, uh, and he quoted the uh, APA Constitution and Bylaws, in, in particular, um, Section 6F, uh, talked about that when the collection of the half percent dues uh, can cease uh, and that the uh, Board of Directors uh, approves how that's going to be an all remaining, you know, how all remaining funds are going to be refunded or rebated to the respect, respective members. So the, the board took a look uh, and ultimately decided that the, the most equitable way to do this, and, and it actually came out to be somewhat of an elegant uh, way, because we had the one-time supplemental payment from letter of agreement 2301 as part of the CBA and uh, the ratification bonus from letter of agreement 2302 from the CBA, uh, that everybody who was paying uh, dues in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023 uh, would also, uh, because they paid dues on, on in those years, uh, also received eligible earnings. That would be the subject of both the one-time supplemental payment and the ratification uh, bonus. Uh, and so to, to develop a method that applied to everybody who had eligible earnings, everybody who had paid dues during those time periods uh, by electing not to collect dues on those two payments, the one-time supplemental payment and the ratification bonus, it, it equitably and, and grabs as large a group as possible in order to refund and rebate those, those excess dues back to the membership. Hope that helps, Chris. All right, thank you, Mark. Uh, next one, this is gonna go to Marcy Scott Benefits. Premiums for the APA Supplemental Medical Plan recently increased by more than double. Will these premiums be adjusted? Hi, Chris, thank you. Yes, in the 38 years that the SMP has only had seven rate increase adjustments since its inception, and each year evaluation is performed on the plan by our plan actuaries, which is Siegel. And that valuation is to measure the plan utilization, medical inflation against contributions and reserves. And as with any medical plan or insurance policy, contributions cannot remain constant while medical inflation and utilization continues to increase. So therefore, uh, rate adjustments must be made to ensure that incoming funds cover outgoing expenses and the fund reserves. Thank you, Chris. 
All right, thank you, Marcy. Next one uh, also benefits. This one's going to go to Joanne Goldfarb with the new contract, decreasing the bridge to LTD and improving LTD benefits. How will this affect pilot mutual aid, PMA, and pilot occupational disability, POD? POD and PMA benefits allow pilots to supplement uh, the LTD benefits provided by the company. The company's new LTD benefit only provides 50% of the pilot's pre-disability income. Uh, for pilots that don't feel 50% of their pre-disability income is sufficient to cover their family expenses, POD and PMA continue to provide a short-term solution for the income gap between the pilot's pre-disability income and the company's LTD benefit. All right. Thank you, Joanne. Uh, moving on, I'm going to go back to you, Pat Clark, for this one. So rumor controllers, a couple of things that have been uh, thrown around that uh, are demonstrably false. So we're going to address those. And the first one is uh, that the APA Secretary of Treasury stated that 1% dues is unsustainable. Pat, you want to take that? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm not sure where that quote originated, uh, but as a result of the new CBA and returning to a 1% dues rate, APA's annual dues revenue forecast will drop from approximately 52 million in fiscal year 23 to 44 million in fiscal year 24. That's about 15%. So again, I hate to do this, but according to CNB, the additional one half percent dues shall be used only for expenses specifically related to negotiations for that specific basic agreement that are above and beyond the normal level of recurring expenses. All right, so what does that mean? So since we will not have the extra expenses related to section six, additional outside consultants, legal, extra comm, temporary staff, et cetera, we expect to remain within budget at 1% for, for fiscal year 24. So that, that rumor is, it should be dispelled. Thanks, Pat. Uh, next one, then I'm gonna take this one. A gag order was put out on Phil Comstock from discussing the alpha survey. This is false period dot didn't happen. Those who don't know, Phil Comstock's the individual who runs our polling efforts. That claim was made by a member of the APA to Alpha Exploratory Committee. And while they did contact uh, Phil Comstock to discuss the survey for the research, uh, Phil Comstock has confirmed or confirmed to them that he would need approval from the signing authority of the contract before the contract that he entered uh, with APA before he could discuss the details of the poll. That's not something that's unique to APA's contract with Comstock. It's boilerplate language that Comstock uses on all of the clients, uh, many clients who he conducts polling for. So the approval authority for that contract was the APA vice president. That's me. At no point did the exploratory committee approach me uh, to ask about anything regarding the survey information in Comstock. Had they asked me, I would have absolutely approved it, but they never brought the topic up with me. So I would have no idea that they were even seeking the approval. So again, nobody put a gag order on Phil Comstock. And the only reason the committee might have thought they were restricted from speaking to him is because they didn't follow his guidance for them to ask me. Okay, moving on, we're gonna to go to the uh, negotiating committee. I believe we have uh, Chris Walker and or Matt Stanley here to give us an update. Yeah, hey everybody, uh, Chris Walker, uh, chair of the negotiating committee. Uh, joined with me in the room is uh, Matt Stanley, the new joint implementation action committee chair. Uh, also in the room with us, uh, Mark Myers, our, our chief negotiator, director of negotiations, Don Perry, one of our negotiating lawyers, and uh, Nick Silva, the Economic and Finance Analysis uh, Committee Chair. All uh, key uh, players in getting this uh, contract out to the pilot group and out for vote. Uh, included in that are other members, uh, Adam Rutherford, member of the Negotiating Committee, um, DJ West, 
former Contract Compliance Committee Chair and member of the Negotiating Committee. He's the deputy currently. Jason Saxer, the current chair of the uh, Contract Compliance Committee. Um, and then lots of help from members in scheduling, Vicki Dillavan and uh, Les Edwards, one of the deputy chairs of scheduling, to help us bring to you uh, the contract through the roadshows and ultimately to ratification just shy of one month ago. Obviously, um, as much as we'd like to take a breather, there's been a lot to do post-ratification to ensure that the contract that we negotiated and the contract that the pilot group voted into ratification is going into effect as we expect. As we briefed in the uh, road shows, 85% of the value of the contract was went into effect in the date of signing. Pilots are seeing that in their paychecks as we speak. Um, and we are meeting with the company multiple times a week, even at this point, to make sure that implementation goes smoothly to that end. Uh, I can state that every item ha that has required being implemented at this point is implemented. The company has been on time or early with all items. That said, I know that there are some um, consternations, if you will, with some of the financial items. It was a known thing. It's in the implementation LOA that some of the items which uh, we wanted in effect at the date of signing would take time to program in the automatic processes for pay. And until such time those happen, there would be a manual process. Um, I'd refer everyone to the letter of a, the uh, LOA on implementation, the very end of the contract as well, subsection five, where the parties acknowledge that there may be this delay in payment for economic items with the date of signing implementation date to account for the administrative changes necessary for implementation for these items, the association recognizes that the company may have temporarily manually processed this pay, and as a result, these items may not be paid within the normal payroll cycle. However, it does state that beginning on the first day of November 2023 contractual month, and until such time as payment is in the normal payroll cycle, this temporary manual pro pay process will not exceed more than 90 days after the event. What does that mean to you? Until everything is programmed, they have a 90 days to manually process any pay issues and get them into your paycheck. That includes things like updated SIT rig, that includes things like reassignment premium, uh, et cetera. Also uh, approaching close is the first 45 day limit in order to give the uh, back payment for the years 2020, 2021, and 2022. Pilots should see that uh, in their uh, accounts on or earlier than October 4th. Soon after, at the 60-day point, is when the first uh, ratification bonus covering the additional 21% plus 401k of 16% for the months of May, June, and July. You will see that on or around the, the 19th of October. And then finally, the last uh, portion of that will happen sometime in January, but no later than 24 January. That will cover the months of January, February, March, and April, plus 401k as well. Um, additionally, um, there's some processes to collect information. I don't think probably on this call we have any retirees, um, but to collect information from those who are, who are no longer represented by the bargaining unit, but they are brothers and sisters who, who are out there who, who worked hard and earned during that period to make sure that they get their back payments 
uh, as well. Moving forward, there'll be a transition from negotiating committee handling day-to-day -day section six items to doing contractual interpretation as needed and transitioning over to the JIAC to work jointly with the company to make sure that the company objectively hits all dates for implementation and subjectively determines the prior, the proper prioritization for those items to which uh, are subject to JIAC prioritization for how um, they will evolve. And, you, and I know that sounds like a lot, but things like the ECS and things like the RAS, we want to make sure very specifically we are involved in the development of them. They're not something that can be just plug and played right off the shelf. And we want to make sure that there is pilot involvement in making sure that ultimately the system that you all use best reflects uh, the wants and needs of the pilot group. To that end, I want to hand it over to Matt Stanley to, uh, to chat for a bit about uh, his committee. Matt. Hey, th thank you, Chris. Uh, this is this is uh, First Officer Matt Stanley. Uh, thank you for allowing me to serve as your chair of the Joint Implementation Action Committee. Uh, I know Chris uh, talked a little bit about some of the specific members, but I just do want to highlight that uh, the four of us are Jason Saxer, uh, Adam Rutherford, and John Wickham. Jason, of course, continues to serve as your chair of the, your contract compliance committee, and you can obviously see the value of having him there. Adam and I both served on your negotiating committee and continue to do so. Uh, and John Wickham is our chair of the operational analysis committee, OAC, and is also uh, very tied in, and I would consider him uh, part lead, uh, if not the lead, on, on the Sentinel development. And you, you can see, of course, uh, the value of, of having him tied into all of this as it relates to implementation. We are uh, already, in, we've already had numerous meetings uh, concerning the first sub-working group under JIAC, which will be the Electronic Commun Communication System, ECS. And in fact, we are planning to meet and receive presentations from two to three vendors next week uh, that will kind of help inform how we go forward there. And, and uh, the exciting part is that, that the association is uh, involved with and directly influencing the selection of those and, and uh, the development of that system. And, uh, and then a little bit, as Chris mentioned, uh, the reserve assignment system, uh, recovery obligation, or 4C, and uh, trading and pickup will be the, probably as we see it, the three other large sub-working groups under the, under the JIAC. I do want to take just a moment to mention a few other specifics uh, regarding the upcoming payments that the negotiating chair just talked about. Uh, specifically, uh, with the uh, there's a deadline looming, and uh, this relates to your 401k contributions. Uh, the first payment that you're receiving upcoming here is on October 4th, the one-time supplemental payment or OTSP, and uh, you have until this Friday, September 22nd, to update infidelity net benefits, update your special election percentages because the OTSP. Uh, will be considered a special payment, much in the same way that a profit-sharing check you would receive would be. So if you desire to contribute, uh, although there is not a pensionable aspect to that, in other words, the company is not contributing 16% on top of that payment, but if you wish to contribute some or all of that payment to your 401k, you have until this Friday to make that uh, election infidelity uh, for the guarantee that that election will take effect before that payment hits your accounts on October 4th. The second thing I want to say is about uh, RB1, as we're calling it, or the first payment of the ratification bonus that Chris mentioned. And, and that payment is not special. 
And what I mean by that is it will be treated as if it were uh, incoming to your accounts, just like a regular paycheck. And so I would recommend that by the first deadline that I just mentioned, September 22nd, this Friday, you consider that in your decision about how to modify, if at all, the regular contributions that, that go into your 401k. Um, in any case, uh, we look forward to serving for you. We are uh, committed to, uh, to this process, and uh, uh, we have a lot of communications uh, in the future months coming out, and we, uh, we endeavor to make sure that you're informed about what portions of the contract are implemented and what portions are still operating under the JCBA. Thanks a lot for your support and uh, more from us up, upcoming. All right, thanks, guys. We'll go into the questions for now. Uh, please address where we're at with uh, the one-for-one -one pay over 10-hour duty day. Why do we not have it? If we need to study it, how long before a decision is made? Thanks, Chris. So the one-for-one -one duty pay rig was a rig that said uh, after uh, working 10 hours, pay would be paid at uh, one-for-one, uh, and this was something that was put out in the uh, Delta contract that they took, um, United under their uh, current AIP that they're currently voting on with an expected ratification date of around 29 September um, has it as well. We looked at it. We did discuss it during negotiations. It was uh, one of the items that we discussed near endgame between TA 1.0 and TA 2.0. Ultimately, that provision was put into the post-ratification LOA meaning that both sides acknowledge that there would be further discussion upon this. One of the things that uh, we briefed in the roadshow, and I will relay to everybody on the call, is that we do not rush into rig changes. We want to make sure that we fully understand what happens when you make an adjustment to a rig and what it will do to PBS before we sign up for making that change. It was our expectation that when you make this rig, it will not just pay all those currently built over 10 hours and that the optimizer will very rapidly remove that type of flying. And in the only way that they will get to the line construction values that they need to based on the number of pilots and productivity is to have longer trip sequences. And this runs counter to one of the key tasks of the board to the negotiating committee in this round of bargaining. Outside of pay raises, the two most important things that I think that we would all say that our board members wanted us to address was shorter pairing constructions and better ways to trade our trips. And so in our presentation, we, we, we showed all of you at the roadshow. You guys can still see the one is still online, as are the slides. But with smaller trip pairings, that allows for more trading. More trading allows the pilots to get to the trips that they want when they want. Um, and, and allows for people to fly and give the productivity as they want to be versus being compelled to fly when the company may want you to. We felt that going towards this rig would have a deleterious effect. That said, we have to have the truth data. So um, we have ability over at American Airlines, we have two dedicated computers that our scheduling uh, personnel from APA can use on the exact same software that the company uses to run PBS in order to see what this effect is. However, this rule must be programmed by a vendor into that software. And that is currently under discussion as to when that will be done. And then we will do the runs and then we will evaluate. Now concurrently, there is the ability to pull other data. We thankfully have some friends over at Delta Airlines 
who have been gracious enough to provide some of the data that they're seeing in their pairing construction um, since uh, this went into effect. This went into effect for them in September. And what you see is you see a marked increase in the number of four and five days at Delta on their 737s and their Airbus 320s for four and five days in September and October. To give some basic numbers, if you put those in, we'll just call it a, an entire, their group two equivalent for us uh, system. In, in August, they were at about 28% four days and 6% five days. In September and October, they're at about 40% four days and 16% five days. On the 737 over at Delta, they're seeing 20% five days, 50% four days. What does that mean? That means that over 70% of the flying is done in four and five day trips, right? That cost came out of a significant reduction in three days. That runs very counter to what the board directed us, what we saw in pilot polling and the feedback that we've gotten. So we have to be very careful with this. I know it's a long answer, but I want people to understand that. Um, we saw negative effects when we went to average calendar day. That's what drove longer and longer trip construction. We want to be very careful when we make changes to rig to know exactly what it might do. All right, thank you, Chris. Next question, when will we receive a contract comparison? So as a part of Constitution and bylaws and the policy manual, the negotiating committee needs to put out a contract comparison after we have a ratified deal. We do absolutely owe that to you. Based on where United is, uh, we want to see their deal ratified with language before we write that comparison. So that way we can be as accurate as possible. Uh, we will begin working on that in, in, in earnest. Um, we have much of the data already, obviously, because of our knowledge of the AIP and our data on all of the, the stuff in the Delta ratification, et cetera. But you can expect that um, in, in the coming months once we have all the United data to show exactly where uh, we break down. We'd also like to see all the snap-ups execute so that we can show exactly where the rates are uh, post-snap-up so there's no confusion there. Next question, is there any clear month-by-month -month guidance on when the pay anniversary classification dates will be changed in the system? Will there be any compensation for those of us who are not fixed prior to our next occupation, uh, that should say classification date. Oh no, I'm sorry, that is occupational date. Hey Chris, thanks. Uh, no, you're right, it should say classification date, not occupational date. Um, what got, what, what, um, what triggers your pay rate increase, your annual step increases classification date, not occupational date. So it should it should say class date. Uh, clear month, is there month to month guidance? No, there's not. As we've talked about before, uh, the company is going to chunk those uh, probably in a quarterly basis. Uh, and so those who say were hired in July um, and have a classification date of September uh, or even October uh, next year in 2024 should see that adjustment made prior to July. That is the plan and that's that's how it's been set up to be done. I saw one uh, question in the Q&A here written in uh, has a, uh, I think it was a higher date of September and a classification date of January. Um, that pilot is, 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 you know, to directly respond to that question, 
you're not going to see that change in 2023. You'll see it in 2024. Everything has to be done by the end of 2024. If the company misses that mark, then there'd be an opportunity to say, hey, here are the people you missed, and you missed it by this date, and we'd be able to seek um, a remedy for them. Uh, but prior to that, um, the, the plan is to move forward throughout the year uh, in chunks, primarily in, in quarters, and we'll be tracking it as we go along. Next, why is the 30% free 2023 LTD increase not effective until September 1st of 23? Hey, Chris, I'll take that one as well. Uh, so uh, the original plan was that people, that those pilots who are on LTD right now would see that 30% increase in September. There have been some processing delays. The pilots should see that, and those who are currently on LTD should see that in their October paycheck. Uh, but that, uh, what they see in October will be covering their September benefit and their August benefit. So it is, in effect, August 1st. Um, so the question asked, why wasn't it? Um, but it, it is effective August 1st, 2023. Uh, but pilots originally were supposed to see that in September. Now they're going to be seeing it in October because of the processing delay. I know some folks got letters from the company uh, that created some confusion. Uh, the company is correcting that as well. Again, you, uh, the pilots should see this, the 30% the effective August, but they won't see it until their October paycheck. All right. Why wasn't the 14-hour call-out for long-call reserve able to be implemented on date of signing? Hey, this is uh, Chris. So in order to get to the 14-hour call-out, this is going to be tied directly to the new reserve assignment system, the new RAS. And so it is a function of programming because there is a difference between inside and outside of DOTC, amongst other things. Um, look, I, I, I'm not a programmer, and so I, I, can't, I can't bear the complete burden of when the company says how long it takes to program an item. Um, but so we, we tried to impose as, as much of a, a, a near-term time as we can on that. Obviously, we wanted everything implemented at day one, but this is one of those that they wanted a program right as a part of RAS, and so we will not see it until the new RAS is implemented. Senior reserves can be bypassed for premium awards to junior line holders. Why was this not addressed during Section 6? I, well, quite simply because it wasn't tasked by the board to be addressed by Section 6. Um, there is a group of pilots that are senior reserves who believe that they should be awarded a premium reserve that flies into their reserve days or maybe not before it goes through the normal process of to the line holders that have that time off. The company has the ability to use multiple levers. Those are contractual. They remain contractual and we got no tasking to change from that process. With the trip trading lockdown, sick usage is the only way for me to get rid of a trip when I need those days off. Does the company not understand that improving trip trading means fewer sick calls, better schedule flexibility, improve reliability? Hey, it's a it's a good question, you know. And again, I, I go back to um, I go back to what I said earlier uh, on, on our goals to improve trip trading and to improve that pairing construction. This argument directly was made to the company. When we went to the company and tried to get to additional sick accrual, 
before we got to ESB, before we got to the 66% payout, the company's claim was sick usage has been going up and continues to do so. And if we give you more sick, you'll just use it. We very quickly reminded them and countered that first off, we were in a COVID post COVID environment where people are focused on their health. And second off, the direct correlation of increased sick usage was tied to the increase in four and five day trips. If I have a doctor's appointment and I try and bid around it, and then I have a four day trip on it, I have no recourse other than to do what this gentleman asks. And I drop the whole thing for sick. I cannot pick underneath it. My sick usage is increased. And because I have nothing but a bunch of four and five day trips that are untradeable, I'm not able to move my schedule around to, to give productivity elsewhere, make pay elsewhere. It hurts the pilot and hurts the company. And so we use this exact logic train to the company to go, it is better for you to go to shorter trips. And the company doesn't want to go to shorter trips because it may induce some synthetic. It may induce some soft time. They may have to dead a pilot, deadhead a pilot every once in a while to make those trips. But what we were able to show them and what you'll see in the roadshow is that there's a, there's a point there where it's worth it to do that in shorter trips in order to guarantee that the sequence goes as flown and it helps the pilot, pilot in trip trading. So absolutely, we talked about this. We understand that trip trading is still locked down. Scheduling, uh, I'm not trying to steal their thunder, but um, you know, briefs the board on this on the regular of exactly how much trading is there. I do encourage people to play more in TTS. The more people play in TTS, the better it works. And obviously, with some of the shutdown of the functionality of some of the other uh, outside APAA type things like lightsaber, there's more opportunity to use it that way. But what we need to see is with the shorter pairing constructions that they open up the aperture and we continue to encourage the company to do so. For the RHRA cash option, is this total hours? Uh, and this is an example he's asking for. Is this total hours remaining in the sick bank times 66% times the hourly rate upon retirement? Hey, this is First Officer Matt Stanley again with the negotiating committee. Uh, thanks for this question. Uh, you know, we're, we're excited, as I know a lot of you are, about this new benefit for retirement. And uh, first, before answering the technical, I know that the heart of this question is about the formula, you know, for, for giving an estimate or an idea of, of dollar amounts here. But the, uh, the, I want, before answering the heart of the question, I want to get to the premise where it says the RHRA cash option. And, and it's important not to confound the two different uh, options here, or the, the option, if you will. There's the RHRA, and then separately, you can elect to take the cash option. So two separate things. Alas, uh, the calculation is the same. And you've got three out of the four components correct here. Yes, the multiplier is 66%. And yes, uh, the current hourly rate upon retirement is the correct multiplier. However, those two values should be multiplied by the sum total of, yes, the number of hours in your sick bank that still remains, but also don't forget, we close the loophole on someone who retires at some point in the calendar year and who has earned uh, the monthly sick rate accrual, but those hours were not yet credited to the pilot's account. So you add those two values together, the sick bank plus whatever values, uh, you know, if it had been, if you retire in November, let's say five months times the first 10, that'd be the 50 hours that you would add to the sick bank amount 
then that sum total will be multiplied times 0.66 times your hourly rate. So, so yes, uh, but again, with the qualifier that, uh, that you have to add in that other amount. Uh, this continues. These next couple of questions are all going to be <clears throat> in regards to RHRA. Is this amount tax-free deposited pre-tax into the RHA, RHRA to be used for qualifying medical expenses slash premiums? So this is Matt Stanley again. It's, it's important when we talk about RHRAs, the, the words matter. And uh, the going into an RHRA, uh, you know, this is, of course, federally regulated. And there are IRS publications that, that cover the administration of these. And it's important to note that, that this RHRA, it's not a, a, a credit, if you will. It's not an actual dollar amount. It's a notional uh, account where the notional amount is represented as a dollar amount uh, based on the equation that we just talked about in the previous question. Uh, so uh, it's to say that it's tax-free is a little bit of a false premise, if you will, because it's, it's not the movement of an actual dollar amount into the RHRA. It establishes that RHRA uh, to be used for the, uh, as the IRS publications outline those qualifying medical expenses and premiums. Who administers the RHRA plan? Hey, Chris, thanks. This is Nick Silva uh, from Economic and Financial Analysis. So the administration of the RHRA plan for this specific uh, piece that was ratified in the CBA is still uh, under discussion, uh, likely uh, through um, American Airlines still, but uh, those details should be forthcoming soon uh, as far as how to submit the receipt for reimbursement and what that process will be. All right. Uh, Supplement R states that only the cash option requires a four-month prior notification, but our local flight office is stating that both options require four months notice. Can you clarify this for us and the flight offices? Hey, this this is a great question. You know, to an extent, you know, a lot of this is, is new. So some of this is going to be incumbent upon the company to, to, to not only notify, but educate the flight offices to make sure that they're correctly administering this. So we welcome feedback on this where, where we need to help the company uh, with awareness that there may be issues. But, uh, you know, to the main point of this question, I want to emphasize that uh, the default, if you as a retiring pilot fail to make an election, it's okay. You're going to get the RHRA. That happens by default. You need not do anything. But most of us, being type A personalities, prefer to, to make an election just to, so that we know for sure that it's done. And uh, rest assured that uh, that website uh, through AA Pilots, that tool in the portal is available. Uh, you can navigate to that and, and make that election. Uh, but you need not make an election for RHRA. You're correct. It, it is only for the cash option that, that you must give that four months prior notice. All right. Thank and, you and yeah. Chris, if I could just add real quick to that, that uh, and, and if, if Matt said this, I apologize, but that four-month uh, requirement is waived for those retiring in 2023 since there's, it's impossible to do that. Uh, and, and we understand that the company's reached out to all those folks uh, but but if you're retiring in 2023, you're not bound by that that four month option uh, even in the beginning of January. Uh, but you still use the same you can still use the same tool online to go make, go and make that election. Okay, thank you to the negotiating committee. Hey, uh, Chris, can I can I get one more add on? Yes. 
Hey, uh, so something uh, I'm gonna we're gonna put this out here. We'll have a column that goes out uh, on this shortly for clarification. There's been some confusion on when a meal is not provided or loaded uh, on an aircraft and, and how you file for it. Um, we actually negotiated and discussed with the company. The company agreed to two different provisions. The first provision is a $30 penalty if a meal is not provided. All right. To, in order to get that, you will use Comply 365. It's in the forms there, um, and you can find it on your, your work laptop. You place, you place it in there. I was give out the, the details. No meal was loaded. I was supposed to get a meal. That's a straight $30 penalty. It will be paid. No receipt needed. Right? Additionally, the pilots are able to go procure a meal. We made it clear to the company that the timing of when you procure the meal is not uh, always going to be the same time. You may uh, have to procure the meal beforehand because you realize meals aren't loaded. You may have to go get a meal after a flight because meals were loaded. You may need to get on the company-provided transportation to get to the hotel, go into the hotel restaurant, and have your meal because you missed a meal. For that provision, it is meant to be a reasonable reimbursement. We've asked for further clarification to state that, look, reasonable right now is $30. If it's less than $30 with a receipt, you'll be reimbursed to the receipt amount. If it's over $30... It, it will be reimbursed up to that $30. For that actual reimbursement, you have to have an actual meal, you actually have to have a receipt, and you need to submit that through Concur. I understand that it's a little bit of a process for both of them, but not everybody goes and gets a meal when they miss a meal. If you do, there's a maximum current uh, reimbursement of up to $60. If you just wanna go, meal was missed, but I had my own thing, I want the $30 penalty, you can do that as well. So just some clarification there and we'll put a comm out. Okay, thank you, Negotiating Committee. So we're gonna back up here real quick because uh, Captain Sitcher had a late flight and we do have him on now. Let me cue this back up. So hey, Captain Chris. Sitcher, if you are up, go ahead with your uh, president's update. Excellent, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, loud and clear. All right. I apologize, Chris. I'm I'm heading out to my daughter's wedding, and the flight into uh, O'Hare was a little late. Um, United doesn't run any better of an operation than American, and uh, my wife lost her phone, so I was a half hour late getting into the hotel. But hey, um, I'm on the phone. I'm on the call now. I hope I don't repeat anything that you or Pat said. So please, Chris, don't hesitate to stop me if I uh, start to go ahead and and tell the members what they already know. But uh, it's, it's, it's an exciting time at APA. I think everybody is fired up. The value of this contract is going to sink in as the members start to fly it and as they start to look at their paychecks. The first one probably already hit, hit the deck here on the 15th, but the best is yet to come. So what are we doing at the union? We're going back to basics, guys. We're getting back to the stuff that we needed to do when we weren't diverted by section six negotiations. It's implementing the contract, enforcing the contract, clearing the grievances, fixing the trip trade system. And we've got some other things going on that we think you'll like the IT. I know that Phil is gonna talk a little later. There's some exciting things happening in the building. So uh, that's where we plan on shifting our focus. We've got a lot going on at Capitol Hill right now too. I just spent a few days in Washington. Um, I sat down with uh, Senator Maria Cantwell yesterday, 
in our GAC house. And we talked about the FAA authorization bill. We talked about our priorities. We've got the 1500 hour thing on the front burner, 867. Uh, we've got secondary barriers, our flags of convenience, all the stuff that we have going on in Washington is up front and center, thanks to the amount of money that the members contribute to the pack every month. And it's 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 something to be sitting there in a room with just a few people and a senator that is that important and influential. And that's not the only one that we sit down with, but that's how we get our our priorities up front and center with with the congressman, with the people who make the rules. Um, we're working on the grievances. I spent God knows how many days in grievance caucuses over the last few weeks. We're trying to clear that backlog. I, I know there's been a lot of the members asking questions of why do we close out the section six negotiations without clearing the grievances? And, and Chris, you know, without getting too far off track and hopefully I'm not stealing your thunder from a future question, but here's the bottom line. We had a lot a lot of grievances backlog, almost 200. Some of them uh, we needed precedence on. We needed to go to an arbitrator. These things don't happen quickly. When an arbitrator takes a look at a grievance, he wants all the data. He wants everybody that's affected. You got It's like trying a case in court. Uh, I've hired a few more lawyers. We've got the Grievance Resolution Committee, and Sean Clark is in charge of that now, and he has been doing an excellent job. He, they are in a caucus right now with an arbitrator. And we are talking over the COVID grievances. That's the first bucket that we're tackling. We're hoping to get these guys uh, restored. their sick banks that were taken away when they took COVID leave. And uh, remember that that letter right now is another year left on it. So we want to make sure that we set a precedence on that. Scheduling. That's another big one. I talked about fixing the trip trade system. That's more complicated than it would seem. We've got a lot of moving parts in there. It's not as easy as just replacing TTS with Flicka or something like that. Look, the, there's a number of pieces. Chris from contract negotiations talked a little about reducing the, the average value of the trips. We've got that going on, but it needs to be in concert with lowering the line values, putting a reasonable amount of open time on every day so you can trade into a trip, not just drop it down to zero. And then we've got uh, trying to convince Johnson and Isom that they need to treat open time as a marketplace and, and entice the line holders to pick it up instead of always putting it on the reserves. But anyway, those are the things that are going on, Chris. It's an exciting time. I think that uh, the members are going to be psyched up once they start to see what's happening. So uh, if you got any questions for me, I'll, I'll stop right now before I start running over the committees on their time and uh, let you shoot. Okay. All right. Well, Ed, you, you just addressed the first question that we had, which is the status of the outstanding grievances. So I'm going to just jump into the second question here. Uh, Captain Citrus sent a memo to APA committee members stating that pilots advocating for a choice in representation is a violation of the Constitution and bylaws, and there would be no tolerance for speech that is adversarial to APA's very existence. Can you explain what provision of the CNB was violated and what we can expect for APA volunteers who have a differing view than leadership? All right. Good question, Chris. First of all, let me let me start off by saying this. The minority group that started this alpha card campaign has every lawful right to start a card campaign if they so choose to do so. But it's not the responsibility nor the obligation of APA to support the effort, which really seeks the ultimate demise of the union. It, you know, I'm not in any way, shape or form obligated to allow my own union resources, a union I have a fiduciary interest in, a responsibility to, to bring down our house. 
nor is it those who are on the committees. So, you know, there's a difference between going ahead and allowing the members to talk about what they want to talk about on their own time and actually supporting them with APA resources. There's case law. There's a lot of case law written regarding a union's obligation with respect to this issue. And I'm sure that when they start to research it, they'll figure it out. This is not the first time this has happened. You know, we've got Article 7 of our Constitution and Bylaws, Chris. It was written a long time ago, and they contemplated this very thing when they stated that it is a violation of our Constitution and bylaws in Article 7. Any act contrary to the best interests of the APA as an institution or its members as a whole. That's it. It's grounds for expulsion. It's grounds for disciplinary action, fines. I, I could keep going on. So the bottom line is the members can talk amongst themselves in, and do the card campaign all they want. I don't have to use union resources nor allow them to use my servers, my my online union hall to go ahead and support it. Now, if, if these guys are really that hell-bent on raising our dues by $50 million a year, going ahead and abrogating our independence to an umbrella union that resides over a thousand miles away and one which thousands of our TWA pilots sued successfully for a duty of fair reputation, let them proceed. But I don't have to go ahead and facilitate that process. The association dedicated over $100,000 to that alpha effort to look at it. And at the end of the day, we went through our process and we determined we're not, we've let it run its course. We're not going any further. So, so it is what it is. It's time to move on. And I fully intend on doing that. I'm getting back to the work of running this union and improving this union. And I don't, and I'm not going to keep volunteers on the committees unless they stick to their fiduciary duty to support APA. They certainly are free to go ahead and leave the committee. They have a right to free speech, but it just won't be from inside the building where they try to tear it down. Now, I ran on a platform that vowed to max perform this union for the Section 6 negotiations first, and I think we did that. We've got a lot of industry-leading aspects. Unfortunately, we didn't get everything we wanted, but I don't think you ever do in a negotiation, but we got a lot. And now I'm going back to work on the second thing I pledged this union, and that's reform in the organization. And the board is fully behind me, and the board has, has committed to this with the governance caucus. We're not perfect, and we know that. And we're going to work on getting as close to perfect as we, per as we possibly can. So let's let the governance portion take its, let's take its course. Let's move out on this. At the end of the day, you know, it's the member's organization. It's your organization, guys. The members need to sit up, take notice, and become involved in constructively improving this union, not tearing it down to build another one. All right, Chris, I'm sorry I went long, man. I'll let you go. What, what else you got for me? All right. Uh, what is being done to address the lockdown on trip trading? Okay. that You know, I wish scheduling was going to be on tonight, but let me tell you where that has gone. First of all, let me, let me address the fallacy out there that the problem with trip trading is TTS. That That's... That's not quite the truth. The lockdown on trip trading is caused by a number of different issues, most of which we have no contractual control over and of which need to be corrected in concert together in order to fix this system. So by merely changing to another computer program, it doesn't fix the system at all. And, and I know a lot of the members already know this, but some don't. The TTOT system had a, a bunch of software glitches in it 
that were allowing members to pay a third party to clear their schedules and sit around and wait on premium. And the company was scared to death because they couldn't fix it. They didn't have the resources to fix it, that if they kept TTOT running, eventually everybody would catch on. It was mostly a Phoenix thing and nobody would have a schedule. Everything would be on open time. So there's no way they're going to allow us to go back to TTOT with that glitch in. I can tell you that we're going to have to fight them to the mat on it. But back to the TTS thing. Look, what needs to be corrected are the average trip durations need to be reduced. And, and I think that we addressed a lot of that in the contract. And there's more, there's more, there's more where that comes from. We need to keep reducing the average trip duration. We also need to reduce the average line values. Back in the day, Chris, we were flying 73 to 75. You could flex three times a month up to 78. You had all kinds of headroom to go ahead and pick up, move, trade. Right now, we're getting 88 hour lines and you can't put a four or five day trip between other four and five day trips. So we've got to work on lowering that average line value. And then finally, we've got to work on increasing the number of hours that the company allows on open time every day. Right now, they're, they're overriding the computer generated open time floor and they're, they're jacking up artificially the number of reserves that are required. And it's causing a day to lock down red. And whenever your trip touches that day, you can't move it, you can't touch it. It won't do anything. And this is causing the lights to, to basically just lock down red. So uh, I'm a little frustrated on this, Chris, and I'll try to keep this a little short. I know I tend to go long on these explanations, but I've sat down with Johnson and Isom and we've talked hours on this thing and that I need this thing fixed. And it's not just one thing or another. I don't need one month where we have lower trip durations, but the damn lights are locked down. I don't need one month where they lower the average line values, but they won't loosen up on the lights or reduce the trip durations. We need these things to happen all at once. I had an agreement to do it in Charlotte in October, and that was before the section six negotiations dragged out and ran right into the September uh, timeframe where they were supposed to be uh, formulating the new sequences, the optimizer was supposed to be building them. So we're gonna do this again, we're gonna tackle it again, and we're gonna hopefully get this system down to the point where pilots can trade their trips, enhance their schedules, you know, people that want to stay home. I had a number of young ladies in Miami that wanted to be home for their kids in the evening. We need more turns. That's all there is to it. This is going to happen. We're going to work on it. It's just going to happen outside of Section 6. And hopefully the benefits we got inside of Section 6, the disincentives to reassign us, the disincentives to uh, go ahead and, and keep using us after our trips have fallen apart, all that stuff will take effect and we'll start to see this thing right itself. It's gonna take some time. It's not gonna happen overnight and it's gonna happen in concert with management getting their head count in order. But, you know, and the people are going, Sitch, what do you got? How are you gonna make them do this? They haven't done it so far. But I'll tell you what, this is how we're gonna do it, Chris. The lever that we have to do them is I am gonna, I'm gonna paste in every investor's conference room the horrible metrics that this company runs. They're the worst in the industry. We're running the highest reserve headcount in the industry. When this team took over, it was 20%. Now we're up to 33. They're running 13% more reserves than the average uh, major airline is. And that, that adds up. That's 13% of 15,000 pilots. Call it 2,000. We're running 2,000 pilots too high because they can't figure out how to use their line holders. The average reserve guy flies 55 hours a month, the average line holder 85, 88, excuse me. 
So why would you want to increase the low-yielding employees and decrease the high-yielding employees? These are, these are the kind of things I think that the company sees and they see if there's some fruit for them. It's good for them. It's good for us. So we're going to move in this direction. Sorry, Chris. I went long again. That's what I got on for you on trip trade. All right. Thanks, Ed. So from here, we're going to jump back. Uh, give me one second. Okay. Up next, uh, IT Steering Committee, FO Phil Johnson. And actually, I didn't put your name on there. My apologies. But uh, John Wickham as well is up. Hey, Chris, thank you. Hey, uh, really excited, guys. A lot of hard work over the last um, 18, some cases, 24 months. John, myself, Vince Treverton, a few other pilots have been associated for quite a while. So we're excited because we're getting really close to getting some of these tools into the user's hands. Um, lots of great feedback for Mobile 2.0. Um, just ran the report. We've got 6,500 beta testers. Those are all unique users. John, myself, and the other group, we've answered 600 plus feedback emails in the last 30 days. The response has been tremendous from the group. We really appreciate it. That's got to tremendously help the uh, the deliverable here and, and tracking issues across various devices and operating systems. So it's been a tremendous help. So thank you. Uh, today we released version 1.4. Um, we released that by the vendors. There were a couple snags this morning on Android. I apologize about that. We rectified those pretty quickly. So um, right now, the high-level deployment plan, as we, we're getting really close to uh, moving out into the production environment versus beta. So we had one release today, 1.4. Um, we're hoping that's stable and corrected a lot of bug fixes. We should have one more release this week that fixes some of the user experience around Sabre authentication and interacting with the authentication met, met, uh, mechanism there to update your password. We've had some issues there. And then next week, we should have 1.5, and we really hope that that's stable and ready to go, and that'll be what we hope is our production candidate, which we will push out as our new web, excuse me, mobile 2.0 application and work to deprecate the mobile 1.0. So we're thinking that should happen no later than probably the second week of October. Certainly some things up in the air, but that's our tentative high-level plan. So as we get closer, certainly expect a lot of communication. And again, we really thank all the beta testers and the emails. It really helped a lot. So I'll let John take it from here. John, go ahead. Hey, this is First Officer John Wickham, Chairman of Operational Analysis. As Phil talked about, we've gotten a lot of support from the union and our subject matter experts to help launch both the new mobile app, Sentinel, Pay Audit, and Trip Info. So what you can expect to coming up, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking to our subject matter experts in scheduling, contract compliance, the NC, and we've gone ahead and coded some of the low-hanging fruit items in the contract, that we have a dedicated team of six APA IT developers that are coding on your behalf. Some of the stuff that you're going to see this week, uh, sit time for the new contract, uh, the midnight pay, premium pay, and an update to trailing deadhead. Over the next two weeks through October 3rd, we're going to have international override, long-range narrowbody, sequence protection, reassignment pay, uh, reserve long call and short call conversion, and many more of the contract items uh, coded and showing up in Sentinel. This expands on the list and our capabilities of coding this contract and following up with contract enforcement on your behalf. We have over 100 items in the contract that we have on our roadmap, and our goal is to continually, on a weekly basis, publish and promote these to the user group so you'll have situational awareness along with the union on the contract, your pay, and events. Next slide, please, Chris. 
All right, what do we have coming up next? In addition to this, the new app, the Sentinel Pay Audit and Trip Info, uh, Captain Vince Treverton can't be with us right now, but he went ahead and created APA Reserve, and he also created Trip Info for the team. He's gone ahead and rehauled uh, the commuter information. So the current Task Saber Commute Info tool, we've completely reworked. We have a complete front end working, and we're connecting to data feeds right now. So this is based on user feedback from pilots that ITSC and APA has received. And we're building follow-on products for one look, one feel, and making everything a lot easier for the day in the life of a pilot. We're expecting this new app uh, inside of the APA mobile app uh, to be launched in late October with follow-on upgrades for Logbook, Task Saber, OpenTime, and many other tools uh, uh, that pilots have asked for. That's all I got. Thanks. All right, thanks, Phil and uh, John. On to contract compliance, Jason Saxer. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Jason. Uh, here's the format that we've been following. We'll throw up this uh, question. I'll yak at you for a couple minutes and then uh, Chris will show the answer. Um, so this month, uh, in addition to narrow body pay band rate, what overrides apply to a pilot flying a 321 NEO to Hawaii? Uh, the long-range narrow-body override, uh, the long-range narrow-body override plus the international override, the narrow-body long-haul override and international override, or both A and C. So take a minute to answer. Hey, Jason, I think you might have muted yourself. Sorry. Um, and uh, thank you uh, for uh, my team and updating our new uh, eight-hour course on the new provisions of the CBA and also the ones that still remain. Um, this process will uh, be updated as we continue through the implementation timeline. But uh, last week, we had over 400 pilots and uh, the team answered 300 questions about 100 of them could have been answered by reading the implementation timeline. Uh, so we're happy to do that. But if you all can uh, take a little bit of time and uh, attempt to find the answer on your own, it'll help everyone. Um, but our next uh, contract training course will be in Dallas, in person, and on Zoom on uh, the 25th of October, uh, a Wednesday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if you want to do it in person, feel free to sign up on the DFW domicile calendar. And you can also uh, sign up on Zoom via our uh, contract compliance page. And that'll be in the digest this week as well. On that education piece, please try and uh, familiarize yourself with the, the new CBA, the markup version and the clean version that'll be out soon, along with the implementation timeline. Uh, with all the Compass documents, we worked with the team last week on the Reserve User Guide and some of the, the documents that everybody are, are waiting for updates to. Uh, just posted the new sequence protection flowcharts with a new page one on the implemented items re related to Section 4C. So take a look at those new crew meal flowchart coming out. There's a lot of information out there. Uh, take some time to become familiar with it. The News Digest Q&A, we do one of those every week. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great gauge of where you are on your knowledge and, and you might learn something, so pay attention to those. And as always, contract admin is always available uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., seven days a week. So the uh, answer to 
the quiz question should be option D. There are three overrides when you fly a NEO to Hawaii, and that's the long range, the uh, that would be the type of airplane you are flying, the long haul, the type of flying you are doing, and of course, the international override. So uh, looks like uh, over half uh, or right at half got the answer correct. So good job on that. Uh, and that's about all I got. All right. Thank you, Jason. Moving on, scheduling. Uh, Jordan Miller and Ryan Gertz, you're up. Hey, good afternoon. Yeah, we just want to do for this one a little overview of our PBS awarding process because that seems to be something uh, people aren't aware of everything we're doing. And then uh, that's kind of around this, this time of the month. So uh, last week after the PBS closed for the user uh, until the PBS award comes out, uh, APA and your scheduling committee are really busy reviewing awards and I think people don't understand kind of the scope of it. So uh, just the highlights from this last PBS awarding process, uh, there was 300 runs done uh, throughout all of the bid statuses. Uh, we have uh, and reviewed inputs that APA gave uh, to the company on rerun settings resulted an elimination of over 2,400 uh, coverage days. Uh, we reduced uh, system line constraints. Uh, we reduced the number of LN awards and increased the number of uh, P1, but particularly uh, pairing one through three awards and layer one through three awards. Uh, so though we get a lot of questions that are like, hey, why does it take so long for PBS awards to come out? The reason is because they were doing a lot of reruns and a lot of work to get the best possible solution uh, for you, the pilots. Uh, and it takes a lot of back and forth between us and the company. And so we can find that sweet spot of where uh, we can get the best uh, award for the pilots. Uh, with the lowest number of constraints, while at the same time the company is willing to accept a solution. Uh, so, of course, right now we're in between the award process and the uh, award challenge uh, deadline. And so uh, that's kind of the next thing on our list. So what Ryan's spending a lot of his time doing this week is reviewing uh, all of the award challenges that come in. Uh, and making sure that the analysts that respond to those challenges are responding uh, correctly or accurately, uh, and then doing analysis on ones that need deeper analysis or the uh, challenges that got escalated. Uh, Ryan, do you have anything you wanna add to that? No, I'm good, thanks, Jordan. All right, that's all we have, Chris, thank you. All right, <clears throat> thanks, Jordan and Ryan. Up next is Safety Ops, Captain Gavin Tate. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for the time. Uh, I'd like to address the special interest items. We are still tracking those up to date. Uh, we have 22 incidents, and we just had one uh, President Sitcher's aware of in Boston. Um, we're going to get a calculation at uh, 31 December. Then ourselves, TWU, we're going to approach management and sit down and have a conversation about what is causing these is issues. And which we all know, there are lots of, of young folks and new uh 
people on the job, ATC, ground jobs, gate agents, pilots, flight attendants. So that's really affecting the ground ops. And um, so we're going to take those numbers and, and go across the street once we get our, uh, done uh, 31 December. The Guatemala City video is complete. Uh, I want to thank our FOQA team. I want to thank Mike, Micah, um, uh, First Officer Mike Holland, who, who filmed and flew the video. It uh, should be a great product. It's going to greatly enhance our situational awareness going into Guatemala City. As everybody would know on this call, we lost our Czech pilot going down there for our, our new captains, which uh, we did not agree with. So we got the next best thing. So we're really looking forward to rolling this video out. And then the uh, we have completed the safety survey that everybody took right before we got hot and heavy into the contract. So the numbers are done and the video is going to be produced in the next couple of weeks. And then it will also back up what I just said about a lot of our ground incidents. But we're looking forward to rolling that out to the membership. And I'll yield unless there's questions. All right. Thank you, Gavin. Next up, Hotel Committee, Carmen Thompson. Thanks, Chris. We recently expanded our survey this summer, and our goal was to capture better data on the layover experience while also giving membership an easier option to give us feedback on the hotels and transportation and the debrief, which can be somewhat cumbersome. So debrief is still ideal for safety, security, big issues, specific situations that need to be addressed with the company or the hotel uh, in short order. And pictures are really helpful, so submit those with if you have something uh, that is, is better indicated to a picture. Survey is better for tracking trends and some more big picture items. So transportation, wait time, housekeeping issues, food options, noise. Send those to us in a survey versus a debrief. Survey shows us trends and allows us to present specific data to the company. So saying of our indicating a 20-minute wait to get whatever hotel is much more powerful than one or two debriefs. We also use that data, both good and bad, when it comes time to uh, market, when the contracts are expiring. We have a great hotel, and you guys indicate that. We can tell American we just want to stay at that hotel. We don't want to restart the market. And then recently, and probably even more importantly, uh, we were able to successfully use overwhelming data on a specific hotel uh, to, to uh, prompt American to resource the market outside of uh, contract expiration. We should be announcing that today. Uh, if it's not auto-populating for you after your layovers like it used to, that should be fixed soon, but you can go to your APA mobile inbox um, and fill out the survey there. CBA changes, PDY pilots were able to decline a hotel for the October bid month in exchange for $2,000. You can use the drop-down menu when you bid for a PDY, and then if we're involuntary assigned, they'll send you an email and you can respond that you want to decline the hotel. Allocations for hotels are done the second week of the month, so it may not be possible to change this after you see your PDF award uh, after publication date. Sit periods now, four hours will qualify you for a hotel room. And then the CBA also specifies that it will be at a short layover hotel. We've had one or two instances where it was. Uh, probably the biggest thing, we have concrete contractual language regarding suitability for a long and short hotel. So now 13 hours and under will be considered a short, 17 hours and over will be a long. Previously, we didn't have anything written in the JCBA. Um, so between 13 and 17 hours, we're gonna use time bands. American has been doing this uh, for years and it can be for a lot of different reasons. Maybe the transportation time is excessive to the long location. Or even, uh, for example, in Philadelphia, we max out rooms that we can use at our short at the Marriott short properties. Great. The other short properties are not great, so we send 14-hour ODLs 
forecloses long in Philadelphia. So we'll continue to use those time bands, 13 short, 17 long. That's all I have. All right, thank you, Carmen. Uh, up next is Compass Armando Torres. Hello, everyone. Hey, this is Armando Torres. Uh, thanks for being here. Just want to talk about uh, probably the most important thing that everyone mind is the uh, CBA, the 2023. The Compass guides are updated. Uh, you'll see a banner in the upper right corner, a dark red banner. It says 2023 CBA. It means it's compliant. Um, the old one, if you come across an old one, we're about 95% complete on posting all the new stuff. But if you come across an old one, it will have a gray background. So it'll be very, very uh, clear to you that it will be that way. Um, so go ahead and start deleting your old stuff. Start downloading the new ones. Anything that's been implemented or to be implemented within the next 90 days is in there. Anything beyond that, about 12 months to or greater, we didn't put in yet because there isn't enough specificity or detail. Um, <clears throat> now, remember, uh, Compass... We do more than just new hire memberships. If you're a new captain, if you're a new parent, if you're coming back to work after a VELOA, uh, we have membership and mentorship programs for that. Um, last on this, if you do have a question, use the email at the bottom or we have a hotline that's being manned for kind of your everyday questions. If you don't think it requires uh, waking someone up in the middle of the night uh, for contract compliance or something, we do have people manning lines uh, listed on the screen there. Next slide. Um, and we'll also talk about Union 101. So this is a great program. Uh, Vice President Captain Torres talks about what the union does, what each committee uh, brings to the table, intended for the newer pilot, uh, but it helps everyone. Um, so there's a lot of stuff thrown at you at NDOC in that first month or two in, uh, in the union and in, in uh, the company. So this is intended to kind of slow things down and give you a chance to take in what exact benefits do you have? Did you sign up for LTD? So on and so forth. There's a lot of things in there. Uh, it's conducted once a month, every second Wednesday of the month. So sign up, keep an eye out for it. That's all I've got, Chris. All right, thank you. And coming up next is uh, Serp Jim Woodkey. Okay, Chris, um, Jim Woodkey here. Um, just to kind of start with, because a lot of times people go, well, CRP and Wingman, they're the same. Um, actually not. Um, CRP, Critical Incident Response Program, is mostly um, work-related items. And Project Wingman is usually outside of work. That's kind of, you know, there is some leeway on either one to go either side, but that's general. Um, another big difference between us and Wingman is CRP is proactive. We usually call you. That's where I'm going to throw in the pitch here of is your phone number in the member directory? Because if it's not, it makes it really hard to call you sometimes. So, you know, please give us your cell phone at least. Um, and we talk to or listen to people after they have uh, possibly a challenging day or an event. And what may be challenging for you might not be challenging for somebody else. It's strictly the perspective of the actual of the pilot we're, we're calling, the crew we're calling. Each pilot could be different. One goes, it was nothing. And the other one is like, holy cow, this was the worst day I've ever had. So it's all dependent on the person and their previous experiences and their life. Um, we are not mental health professionals. We don't want to be. Uh, we're pilot volunteers. Peer support um, in general 
uh, takes care of about 80 plus percent of people's issues. Um, so maybe people won't have to talk to a mental health professional. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But peer support is really um, very successful in helping people work through um, any kind of re bad reactions they're having to an incident. Um, our mission is to lessen the psychological impact of work accidents or incidents on crew members and family, accelerate recovery from those events before harmful stress reactions can damage job performance, careers, family, health. Um, we basically assist normal pilots with normal reactions to an abnormal event. And at the very bottom, it says, should I stay or should I go? Well, that's actually an article we have on our website. To get to the CRP webpage, you have to go through Aeromedical Committee, then to CRP, and that article is there. It was written by uh, Bill Duxbury. He retired about a year ago, and it's an incredibly good article and helps explain how and why things work the way they do with your mind and your body and uh, why maybe you should take a more of a closer look at uh, how things are going after an incident. So we want to be there to assist pilots, help you stay in control and help you stay on the job and keep you on the job. Our goal isn't to get you off. It's to make sure that you're doing okay. So thanks a lot. There you go. All right. Thank you, Jim. And bringing us home is uh, Captain Jerry Gemma for Family Awareness. I'm going to share my different screen for you here, Jerry. Thank you, Chris. And I just want to thank everybody for sticking out uh, the hour and 17 minutes so far. I'll make it quick. Um, family Awareness, uh, we just finished up Reno Air Races. And I just uh, want to thank the, the team, the uh, committee that turned themselves inside out out there 10 to 5 every day. Had 100 to 150 people a day, um, the last Reno Air Race. So it was uh, a big success. Right now we got Louis Cantor. He's up at Triple Tree Fly-In in South Carolina. If you're anywhere in the Charlotte area, South Carolina, Georgia, make the drive up there. Uh, you can call me directly or look up Triple Tree Fly-In. Just a great experience and great people. And uh, Lewis is up there with our tent. Um, we got some uh, things coming up. Phoenix end of the year, summer barbecue. We got, again, uh, bringing APA and family awareness out to our membership. Um, we have Pittsburgh on October 2nd, so anybody that commutes out of Pittsburgh, um, please uh, reach out or look on the calendar and um, show up. DFW, the contract training with chicken and pickle after. you got a family awareness event after, so big thing. That would be a great way to commute in or um, uh, fly in and do it. So San Diego, we got one, and then holiday parties. Make sure you're looking for the holiday parties in your base. We're working with the... Uh, the committee chairs to try to ensure that we got a, a great turnout for holiday parties, get everybody out there and, and uh, socialize and celebrate each other. Uh, everybody knows or hopefully knows about Finney flight where we meet retiring pilots on their last flights. We're in desperate need of volunteers. It's a, um, you know, we're, we're starting to miss them. You know, it's getting, it's getting some movement and we're missing it because we're missing some opportunities to celebrate with these uh, pilots because we don't have enough volunteers. So please look at that. And something hey, new. Hey, Jerry, hold on real quick. Jerry, Jerry okay. speak to the calendar here. And I, I was going to walk through okay. it while you explain how to do this. Okay. So we have all the events that I just talked about and a lot of people, every event come up and say, I don't see it. So 
when you pull up the APA calendar, the calendar is customizable. And there's the gear, the little gear wheel. And if Chris pulls out, taps on that, there you select the gear and then you can select everything that you wanna see on your calendar. So if you select your base, select family awareness and anything else that is important to you, select those options. And then when you click the calendar on the webpage, on APA webpage, then it'll populate the events. If you don't select an option, it, your calendar is blank. Then when we have events, if you go to one of the events and click on it, all the pertinent data for that event shows up. Um, sun and fun, we have a picture of the, in, in Oshkosh, we have a picture of the um, a map that shows you where we're at. We have the, the calendar of events that talk about what we're doing for the day and, and when to come. So um, very important, go to the calendar and, um, and select, uh, select your options. Also very important when you go there, RSVP, so that we don't run out of food and, and beverages and uh, we have an idea of who's coming. Um, one of the last things that we've we just rolled out, I know we did it last year with the big hurricane in Florida, we call it critical pilot response CPR. And this is after a natural disaster like a hurricane, uh, we missed the ice storm in Dallas, that was my fault. But connecting pilots that have a need after a natural disaster with the pilots that are offering help. So please pay attention to if you see a, a CPR banner, if you see a CPR a critical pilot response uh, message come out, um, really important on that to uh, pay attention and uh, you know coming together as family, we're all one big family and helping each other out. I missed one thing on Finney flight. If you're approaching retirement, you know somebody approaching retirement, please three to six months out, reach out to Finney flight. Um, uh, spinny flight at allied pilots you can email us especially if you're retiring early i've had a couple of uh, pilots that were talking they didn't want to do it and then they chose to and, and they really felt it was special for their family and their friends and themselves too so um, i appreciate everybody's time and uh, questions or if not that's all i got all right thank you jerry so that's it uh, thanks everybody for sticking around i know we went uh, a little bit long here uh, we're going to end the official portion of this. There are still some questions in the Q&A that we will uh, we'll continue to answer um, un until they're basically gone. So thanks again to everybody. Captain Sitcher, did you want to take Kevin's question? Hey, Chris, thanks. Yeah, I've got a, a question from Kevin. Uh, it says, APA committee volunteers outside of the board and NOs have a fiduciary responsibility question mark. Can APA legal or Captain Sitcher please clarify that comment from the president? All right, uh, Chris, uh, Jim Clark, our, our chief in-house uh, counsel is up in uh, Mackinac Island. So I'm gonna take the question if you don't mind. Look, um, you know, fiduciary responsibility is a legal responsibility. It's not something that you take lightly. And it's when you act solely in the best interest of another party, you're a fiduciary. In this case, that other party is the APA. Every one of my national officers, board of directors, my staff, my committee members, everyone who serves APA signs a conflict of interest form. And if you go back to Article 10 in the Constitution and bylaws, 
you'll see what it means to sign that conflict of interest form. And I'll, I'll read it to you. I got it right up here. It says, the following statement applies to all members of the association, its national elected, national and domicile officers, national committee members and staff, all of whom shall hereafter be referred to as the national officers, board of directors, national committee members and staff. And it goes on to explain what a fiduciary responsibility is. And I'm gonna just skip down to the point where it says that all decisions of the national officers, BOD, national committee members and staff are to be made solely based on the basis of a desire to promote the best interests of the association and the membership. And it goes on to explain that, that they are acting in APA's best interest. They're entitled with our members' dues money. They're obligated to go ahead and act on their behalf. They're obligated to protect the interests of the association. It's that simple. I, I could probably give you a better explanation if you wanted to wait until Jim or Josh get on, but that's pretty much it in a nutshell, Chris. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ed. There is, there is one more that I, I think was maybe a follow-on to your previous about the grievances. Um, <clears throat> it says, what the heck we've been doing for the last 10 years. So can you just address the the efforts that have been done, and we don't have yeah. an overwhelming number of grievances that are 10 years old. Yeah, no, we don't. We have a few that are that old, but, you know, first of all, let's go back, Chris, to what you stated last time, and that is we've overhauled the grievance process. We went from one lawyer to three lawyers. I've hired Jared. I hired Greg. We've gone ahead and we've hired, a, we've enlisted the support of a grievance resolution committee. So the process is changing. So you ask yourself, how did we get to where we're at? And the question really is, is a loaded question because first of all, I don't think that we had enough arbitration slots, but even when we did, the company refused to meet us on some issues because the same team across the table that's going ahead and negotiating with us is the team that hears and settles the grievances. So we had to stop negotiations on section six to get them to, to uh, go to arbitration or mediation on grievances. Right now, they don't have that excuse. We're not taking that excuse. We've expanded our slate of arbitrators. We just did that about a month ago. We've gone ahead and increased the number of arbitration and mediation slots, and we've got a whole lot more firepower there. So in a nutshell, um, that's how come we're moving forward on this right now. All right. Thanks, Ed. Thanks once uh, again for everybody who was here, uh, as well as to the committee members uh, and our staff who are here on the call uh, for that. We're gonna. I'm going to leave this up and running just so we can get those couple of, uh, actually, there's just one more question that's being answered. And uh, we'll see you all uh, at the next National Town Hall. Thanks.